my brother, my dog, AI. What's good, baby? Not much, man. You good? Doing good, doing good, man. Thanks for taking some time and, and joining me on this episode of Inside the Neighborhood. I appreciate it. Nah, I appreciate you having me on, man. I know it's I know we've been trying to make this work, so I'm excited we can make it happen. Yeah, it's been about what about a month in the making. We we're supposed yeah. to jump on yeah, around that. Grind week and went to the grind week. We were busy there and now we you know settled in back at home. So uh, it's all timing. So good to have you. No, glad to be here, man. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Now, first off, bro, man, like uh man, I just wanna, you know, show you your respect for for everything that you've done throughout your journey and uh, what you continue to do and uh, all the spaces that you're in, you know, as a as a father, as a husband, uh, as a son, uh, as a representative representative of our university, Michigan State, um, what you're doing on the um, autism scene, you know, across the country. I uh, just want to tell you, you know, uh, much respect towards that, and uh, you know, it's you're, you're inspiring a lot of people, which I'm sure you you already know. So uh, much love and much respect towards that, bro. No, I appreciate that, B. Wood. And, you know, any chance I get, you know, to talk to my my brothers, my Spartan dogs, my teammates about what I do, I mean, it definitely means a lot to me because yeah. I, I know I know how much of an impact that you guys have had on my life. And, you know, you know I hope it's been the same way, you know. It goes both ways. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, it's it's definitely been a life journey for me, too. And, I mean, like you said, just being, you know, the best father I can be and the best advocate and uh, best mm-hmm. son I can be, too, man. I mean, it's just – uh yeah, man, it's definitely been a good journey. And the crazy part is my, my ride's not over yet, man. I still got a lot of work to do, a lot of things ahead of me. So a lot of exciting things, man. Yeah, yeah no doubt, bro, no doubt. So we'll, we'll uh, talk a little bit about the special year that we had together. But um, before we get going on that, I just want to give you the chance to, you know, share your story from the beginning. You know, as much as you want to share, uh, we'll kind of just see where the conversation goes. Um, I know you've had a, a hell of a journey. so. Uh, like I said, I know it's inspiring. It's an, it's touching a lot of people. So I just want to give you the chance to kind of let us know where it kind of began. So it all started in uh, 1993. Uh, that was when I was diagnosed with um, pervasive developmental disorder, which is on the autism spectrum. Uh, during that time, B. Wood, in the early 90s, like nobody, re- nobody really knew what autism was. Nobody really knew a lot of the characteristics for it. Um, nobody really knew a lot of you know, kind of the characteristics, the resources that like there were no resources and guidance for parents and families and individuals who were affected with autism during that time period. And that was more the during that time period it was more the ADD, ADHD area for diagnosis. So, you know, somebody being diagnosed with autism during that time period was very, very rare. Um, fast forward to a year later, when I was five years old, there was a group of doctors and professionals who told my parents in one of my IEP meetings that because I have autism, that I would barely graduate from high school, never go to college, never be an athlete, and likely end up in a group institution with other autistic uh, individuals like myself for the rest of my life. Uh, luckily for me, during that meeting, um, my parents, I mean, you met my mom and dad, like, they're, they're individuals, man, like, if you tell them something, like, you know, they're going to look at that and go, okay, well, you say this, but, you know, he's going to end up doing this. And that's exactly what happened in that meeting. So, yeah. You know, because again, that was during a time where there were no, like, there wasn't a lot of resources or guidance for families who were affected by autism. So my parents could have easily just thrown in the towel during that time. But my dad got up out of his chair during that meeting and said to those doctors and professionals, like, look, like, I respect what you do. I respect what you're trying to do for us. But let me tell you what our expectations are for Anthony. Anthony's yeah. going to go to high school. He's going to graduate. 
gonna go to college, gonna graduate, don't have to be an athlete to do all this. Like if the good Lord wants to bless our son with those gifts, then great, cool, that's a bonus. But he doesn't have to be an athlete to do all these things that you're saying he can't do. So so my parents' expectations from day one were really up here when it came to me being a student. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they had the right help. I mean, Oklahoma's Public Schools was a big reason why I got through school. They got the resources to help accommodate me and to help me be um, best, the best student I could be um, mm-hmm. as far as accommodations go. And then right around my freshman year of uh, high school, it was kind of when my parents kind of told me the story of you know, about my diagnosis. So, cause I remember like growing up dealing with a lot of adversity, uh, adversity from bullies, dealing with a lot of people telling me I couldn't do certain things. And I kind of had an idea at the time when I was in middle school that I was kind of different from everybody, but I didn't mm-hmm. know what that difference was, you know? Um, so my resource room teacher, um, she had different she had different students in her classroom that had different learning disabilities, whether they were on the autism spectrum, whether they had ADD, ADHD, reading, uh, reading comprehension. So I was in a resource classroom and I was like, okay, everybody in this classroom has a learning disability. So I got a learning disability. I just don't know what it is. So fast forward to my freshman year of high school, you know, my parents kind of told uh, me about the diagnosis, what was said about me. Um, and that kind of became, you know, the fire that was kind of, that, that was kind of like the thing that lit the fire in me. Um, hmm. And so I was motivated from there on out to go prove a lot of people wrong. Um, I worked extremely hard in everything I did, whether it's from basketball, my social life, um, and especially, you know, school. Because I'll sit here and tell you, man, I wasn't exactly the smartest kid, you know, in, in high school back in the day. Um, and I had a lot of support, whether it's from teammates, coaches, uh, teachers, family, friends. Um, so I graduated from Oklahoma's High School in 07, uh, went to Grand Valley State on Fulbright Scholarship for two years. Didn't quite work out for me there. So I decided, you know what? It's always been my lifelong dream to go play for coaches and be a Michigan State Spartan. So that's what I did. So I left Grand Valley State after my sophomore year, went to Michigan State, played there for three years, walked on for two, got a full ride my senior year, won a couple of Big Ten titles, went to a Final Four, won a Big Ten tournament title with you. Um, I mean, as you know, played with an incredible group of guys that to this day I'm still proud to call my brothers. And not only did I graduate and get my bachelor's degree in sociology from Michigan State, but I was also able to become the first Division One college basketball player in NCAA history with an autism diagnosis, which is something I'm still very proud of to this day. Um, now I'm an autism advocate, national motivational speaker and author, and just going all over the country, all over the state of Michigan, man, and just doing whatever I can do to help inspire somebody and try to make somebody's day and change one life if I can. Yeah. Hey, well, there's a story, y'all. <laughs> uh, no, that's that's great, man. That's obviously, you know, just with um, us being familiar with each other, a lot of your story I'm already kind of familiar with, you know, with reading your book and spending time with you and watching different interviews. Uh, but I want to kind of go back to early on uh, in your when you were first diagnosed. And maybe uh, I want you to maybe share a little bit more in depth about um, you said your parents kind of, not kind of, they definitely approached this with the um, the right mindset as far as, you know, having a optimistic, uh, perception of this, you know, and, and, you know, so I'm, how they handled that, your situation and diagnosis played a big part of how you continue forward, you know, so, um, from what you guys have talked about, was that ever tough for them, you know, when they heard about the diagnosis or was it just, you know, they just had the mindset of, we're not really too familiar with it. We're just going to attack it full fledged and, uh, just make the most of it, you know, but was it hard for them at all? Or did they have any oh, yeah. uh, questions? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was definitely hard because, again, like, 
you know, my mom, because at the time, um, my dad had just uh, gotten um, the athletic administrative job at Michigan State as associate athletic director in 1993. Um, So I was born in Athens, Ohio. So my dad was working at Ohio University at the time. And, you know, the first time my mom took me in to get me diagnosed, the doctors thought it was just ADD. And my mom, who's coached all levels of volleyball, she's coached high school, college, middle school, like she's done it all. So mm-hmm. my mom had coached, uh, was the head, uh, head volleyball coach at Ohio University for five years. And so mm-hmm. when they said to my mom, you know, it was originally ADD. And my mom was like, no, like I've, I've coached players that have ADD. Like I know what that is. And mm-hmm. so when they took me back a second time and finally got the diagnosis, it was kind of, it was emotional because my mom, you know, my mom has always told me like when she first heard of my diagnosis, it was kind of like a punch to the gut because like at that time, all right, this is what autism is, but like, we really don't know what it is because, you know, this is just something that's really starting to start up at the time. And so and it, seemed, it kind of seemed like with the, what the doctor said, as far as, you know, uh, how he uh, thinks that moving forward, you'll be how you'll turn out, how you'll develop, you know, how, you know, you'll probably end up in a, in a home with other people mm-hmm. who are suffering or experiencing autism. You know, it seemed like they kind of like told him no, worst case scenario you right know? like I feel like that was kind of like that, that was probably had to be a lot you know right Especially with, I, with the unknown behind it you know not really yeah. knowing it was yeah. kind of just like they're preparing them for the the most extreme case am I wrong yeah I, I wouldn't say you're wrong because like again like I don't think nobody really knew what autism was because like yeah. you know because when you know, these three individuals just going down that list of, oh, this is autism. I think they were going based off of what their history was, how they worked with individuals during that time. And so, so at that time, they didn't even really know the how how wide the spectrum was. Right, right. Yeah. They really they really didn't. Like, they didn't know really what high functioning or low functioning was at the time. They didn't know, like, Asperger's being, you know, completely different than, you know, ASD, which is autism spectrum disorder. So, like, I mean, there was a lot of things at that time and a lot of questions that nobody really knew the answers to. So, you know, I look back on that, man. It's like, you know, I, like the doctors were just doing their job. They were going based off of history and working with other individuals and other students. But it's like, you know, I, I, you know, maybe that's something you say to a 17 year old at the time, you know, yeah. who maybe is not as fully developed. But like, you know, we I always look back and go, man, like you said that about a five year old, a five year old who didn't even develop math, math skills yet. It was still kind of working on like writing his name out like you know, so so I look at that and it's like, you know what, like they were doing their job, but I also understood why my father got up and said what he said. Now, I remember after the meeting, you know, my parents were just kind of sat and looked at each other and they were just like, you know, what are we going to do? And I and my dad was just like, you know, we're going to find a way. And so um, Dr. Sandy McDonald, um, the late great Sandy McDonald, she was the assistant director for special education for Oklahoma's public schools at the time. And she sat in on that meeting. And so Sandy overheard what my dad said and Sandy just looked at my parents and said, you're right, we are going to find a way. And so Sandy kind of took it, took it upon herself from that day forward to make sure that I got the right resources and accommodations and the services that I needed to be successful at Warcliffe Elementary, at Chippewa Middle School, at Oklahoma's High School and so on and so forth. So her advocacy for me and and my mom, especially because my mom, B. Wood, took a year off from work you know, to be my advocate, to help, to make sure that I got accustomed to all my settings and surroundings around me in elementary school at the time. And during that time, like in the mid nineties, like, yeah, like you, like if, if a husband or a wife at that time has a really good paying job, like you can get away with, with one income, one Mm -hmm. household income. 
nowadays you can't like you can't get away with that like it's basically got to be a two-way street um Mm -hmm. but back in the mid-90s my mom sacrificed a lot in her career to help me get to where I needed to go and so you know the sacrifices and the things that my parents did to help me get to where I'm at today to help me get to where I need to be as a student back in the day I mean it was a big reason why I was able to get through elementary school a reason why I was able to get through middle school and high school because because of the sacrifices and things that they did for me yeah man shout out to sandy man for showing that love and, mm-hmm. and showing that care big shout out to sandy um and that kind of leads me into another uh, topic i want to kind of talk about and something i probably one of my biggest takeaways from reading your book you know and i've kind of shared with you a little bit when we were texting a while back and uh you kind of spoke on it just now you know just your access to resources you know mm-hmm. having um sandy and your mom and parents you know have um, nowhere to go for those resources, even if they were limited at the time, you know, so mm-hmm. maybe just speak on that, you know, because uh, where it takes me is just, uh, and where I'm sure it takes you, and that's why you're the advocate that you are, and you go around and speaking like you are, you know, because a lot of kids probably aren't even diagnosed with autism, and whether they are or not, they might not even have access to any resources, you know, so maybe share on that, and kind of maybe what you kind of experience when you're out here traveling and talking to these different families. Well, you definitely just said it right there. Like, you know, there are some places that may not have those services. Like I, I've been and spoken at schools, not just in the state of Michigan, but around the country where they may have some resources, but they don't have all of them. And, you know, it it's also, um, it's also a money thing too. Like it is with everything these days, it's all about yeah. money. And so, you know, and, and it can also be political at times too, which is what takes, you know, which is the one thing I always hate, whether it's my own job or just like in the community in general, is that, you know, people always got to be political about something. So like you have some individuals that are like, oh, like that, that student doesn't need this. This is what they need. It's like, like they need to be disciplined more. They don't need that that service. It's like, like, how would you know? Like you don't live in that house of that person. Like you don't know what that family deals with on a daily basis. And so, you know, that's kind of how, that's kind of how, my my late grandfather was my mom's dad um like he thought the way I acted the way I had outbursts and how I would just say certain things and do certain things he thought it was because you know my parents weren't disciplining me um enough as a kid which was the complete which was not the case at all but Mm -hmm. at that time I can imagine I can imagine that happening often yeah 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 and and children not being uh, maybe raised in the proper ways and, and they're not right. even diagnosed and they're suffering from something that nobody even knows about. So I'm right. sure that it, could you know, play uh, a big part in, in people's different upbringings. It definitely plays a big part because I, I've met families who, you know, have told me like, you know, they at, at the time, like they knew their son or daughter had autism, but they really never went and got them diagnosed until it was too late. And because there are some families out there that look at autism and it's like it's a curse or it's like it's a label like you know i've had people say ask me you know what what i think about people calling autism a label and i've told people all the time well guess what like i'm proud to have that label for the rest of my life but we all got labels in life man like Mm -hmm. you know i'm a father i'm an advocate i'm a motivational speaker i'm a spartan dog michigan state spartan alum like those are all labels that i'm very proud to have and like Mm -hmm. you know same with you be with like you have so many different labels that you have in your life that you're proud of and so for me, you know, whenever somebody says to me, you have autism, that's a bad label. And I'm like, nah, man, like, no, like, I'm proud of that because it, it made me who I am and it's helping me, you know, raise the awareness and get out there and try to change lives. Even it's just one life a day. Mm-hmm. Um, but even in the schools, man, like you, you definitely see a little bit more of a 
a push for advocacy and a push for um, awareness too, because a lot of these schools are trying to go above and beyond for those students, because you're starting to see more and more students and kids nowadays get diagnosed with autism. Because when I was diagnosed, I think the number was like, I'm just playing around with numbers here. I think it was like one in 10,000 or one in a hundred thousand. Now we go from that 30 years later to one in 44. So mm-hmm. the, 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 the chances of a, I think it was one in 52 um, for boys that would be diagnosed with autism. I think it was like one in 68 or like one in 72 for girls or something like that. I don't quote me on that, but it just shows you where the, like where we've come from or where we've come from numbers that were 30 years ago to where we're at today, which is crazy. And so, and and you see schools starting to recognize that and you see schools starting to take action. And so, but it's also very tough for schools that for low income schools to try to provide those services, which is why you see some of those families going to different school districts down the road. So like if Oklahoma's public schools didn't have the services and accommodations that I can get, you know, chances are I probably would have ended up at Hazlitt public schools, which is right next door to my, not too far from my parents' house or I, Maybe it was Mason Public Schools or Holt Public Schools, East Lansing, like, you know, just schools within that area. So, but at that time, Alchemist was very well known for when it came to special education. So me being an Alchemist at that time was definitely the perfect fit as well. Nice, nice. So as you began elementary school, can you kind of, can you maybe share on um, when you started to realize that, you know, you were, um, can I say a little different than everyone else, you know? When yes. did you start to realize that? And maybe, and I know I read in your book, you know, you share a lot of examples, which, which to me even um, expanded what I knew, you know, when I was growing up, you know, the only type of autism that I was familiar with is, you know, the type where you can tell physically. Right. You know, so that's all. And I'm sure most people can maybe relate with that, you know, so when reading your book, it kind of uh, put into perspective for me, just, you know, there's so many different types of autism, you know, and you can, um, you know, whether it's, and I just want you to share on, on, on when you began, you know, having those different situations that you, you shared on in your book. So I probably, I probably didn't start, um, noticing my differences probably right around, probably, probably till right around middle school. Um, cause like I said, once I was, cause I always had a parapro with me from kindergarten till the end of fifth grade. So a parapro for those of you listening that don't know what it is, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an aid for kids with special education or kids who need that extra attention um, educational wise. So I had a parapro with me from kindergarten till, um, till I was done with fifth grade. And so when I got to middle school, it was resource room after that. So I had the same resource room teacher for three years. And right around seventh grade is when I kind of really started to notice, okay, you're in a resource room with different individuals who have learning disabilities. So you have a learning disability, you just don't know what it is because I also, I also realized too, like I took all my math tests. I took all my, you know, exams in this, in my, my, in my resource room, uh, Mrs. Hall's classroom. Like I was always in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were times if I ever had outbursts, like I kind of realized that, okay, you know, that's kind of her safe space. Nobody else in this classroom, but you gets that or, or anybody else who's in her classroom, they get that safe space just like you do. But I kind of realized, that's why I kind of realized, okay, maybe there's some differences here but I can all I also could tell too just like the way you give me instructions and the way I responded to it so if we go to the basketball piece you know for example um if you had told me to stand on the block you know you know if you would have told the high school me player go stand on the block it's like okay I'm gonna post on the block but I'm still gonna move back and forth from block to block try to get open um 
but the seventh grade me would just stand on the block because that was the specific instruction that you gave me to do. So I would stand on that block and my parents would be like, you know, you can go from block to block. And I'll be like, no, like my coach told me to stand on the block. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. So, but if you had told another teammate of mine to go do that, like you watch them going block to block and I'm just like, all right, like, so I follow instructions differently. I may act a little bit differently. I may do jokes that people may not understand that only I'll understand. Um, even to this day, like I, I like to call it AI-isms, you know, um, so AI also stands for autistically impaired, but like my initials are also AI. So I go off my, my initials, not, not autistically impaired because I've had people get confused by that sometimes. And I'm like, I'm like, no, like my initials are AI. Like, come on, man. Like, so <laughs> So if I say something goofy, if I come up with my own vocabulary, my own language, like I'll call it AIism. So if I really wanted to write, you know, a set like so I'm currently working on a second book with my co-author, but if I want to write a third book on my own, I might just call it AIisms and just write all <laughs> write each chapter by every different vocabulary word, joke, and sense I ever come up Can with. Can we get an life. example of AIism? Oh man. So um if you um so obviously standing on the block was a good one. But if you had told me at the time, like way back in the day, that's raining cats and dogs outside, like I would have believed that a cat or dog was actually going to fall on my hands, you know, at the time when everybody knows that raining cats and dogs means it's raining really hard outside. Um, you know, another one I would do all the time, and this is in my book, was I would do, I would commentate or do my own press conferences in the shower at the time. <laughs> like the, the, those were definitely some of my AI-isms I did all the time. And just being, just being that goofy goofball that I was in high school. But, you know, the thing was, though, when I was in high school, there was a time and place for all that. Like, you can goof around in the hallways, which is what I always did. Like, it was just being the jokester. But once I walked in that classroom, it was a completely different mindset. Same thing, you know, I mean, you and I know this from being players at Michigan State, like there's a time to goof around the locker room and there's a time when you walk out of that locker room, it's all business after that, whether it's game time, whether it's practice time, like, you know, it's a whole different ball game. So that was kind of like the light switch that would flip on and off in my head. So, I mean, those are a couple of AI-isms. I'm sure I got more, but like, I'm going to have to like dig really deep, man, and try to like go back. <laughs> no, so we're going we gonna to keep an eye out for that third book. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> AI-isms. Uh, yeah, man. So I want to get in, obviously, to our, our year at Michigan State. But before then, I want to, uh, obviously, through your book, you know, you kind of gave the account of your high school career, college, Grand Valley State career. Um, I just want to, uh, I want to know one, like, what's one game or one moment in high school or one matchup? You know, I know you, you kind of talk about all, all of them in your book. So what's one of them to just share real quick that, that stands out to you uh, that you, I'm sure you share the memory pretty often? Um, it, it, for me, man, it was always, it was always the games against Holt high school. Um, you said you know, against Holt? Yep. Against Holt. So that, that rivalry B Wood started my sophomore year of high school when I was on varsity. So we were playing them at home. Uh, they were like ranked number five in the state. We were like number nine. And so they beat us in overtime because they, so one of their, uh, point guards, Tyler Schraub and Tyler's a great guy. I know him. Um, so he got the ball at half court. And he was falling out of bounds and he like jumped up and like double pump fake in the air and just chucks it and he makes it at the buzzer for us to go into overtime. And that's kind of where it started because like the next game we play at Holt, we win in triple overtime and then we play them in districts, which everybody was like, all right, like you're going to mesh these two up in districts, which it's not fair because one of these two was going to win the state championship, which is what Holt did. They beat us in districts. So then you fast forward to my junior year. 
we play them at their place. They were number three in the state. We were number four. And then we sold the game out, the freshman game out at 3.30. And so they seat like 4,000 people. So the entire gym was packed at four o'clock for the freshman game. And a lot of our freshmen like basically almost crapped themselves because they were in front of all the playing for all these people. Yeah. Same yeah. thing with the JV guys. And then, then we played them at our place. You know, we lost them in overtime. We were up 10 in the fourth quarter, blew the game. And then we, you know, lost in overtime and then they come to our place. So we actually got out of school early this day. We had a pep rally around noon. And as we're going to our pep rally, Holt's student section is already lined up outside of our school to get into the building so after the pep rally they had to escort students out another way so fights wouldn't start like that's how intense this rivalry was like that we hated each other man you you thought <laughs> michigan michigan state was a hated rivalry in duke north carolina not mm-hmm. even close to what whole openness was we do like the even the students who weren't athletes even the students who were on the chess teams and the choir teams man they <laughs> hated us they absolutely hated us man so we played them at our place we actually moved the freshman game up a day and then we were actually offered the Breslin center actually offered to host the game because they knew how big of a crowd it was going to be. And of course we said, no, we wanted in our place. And so then we moved the freshman game up a day early and then we actually had a live broadcast of our game. And so if you couldn't get into the game, you could either watch the game in the aux gym on the TVs, or you can go to a sports bar in downtown East Lansing or downtown Okemos and watch the games on there. So it was kind of, it was a really big deal, you know? So we beat them at our place. Then we play them at Don Johnson Fieldhouse where Magic and them played all those games back in the day. We sold that place out two hour, two and a half hours for the game started. 6,000 people came to that game. It was, it was crazy. And just like, just the matchups, B Wood. I mean, it was myself, Jonathan Jones, Ivan Parker, Bobby Albers. And then Holt had Tyler Lehrman, uh, uh, excuse me, John Lehrman, Tyler Reed, um, Joe Powers. Like all those guys went on to play college ball. Paul Crosby, rest in peace. Like Paul, Paul, man, like he, we brought the best out of each other every time we played each other. Like I, I brought the best out of him. He got the best out of me. And every time, we played against each other, man. It was just a war. Like we just went after each other every, every time. And so, but there was a, there was a lot of respect. There was a, there was a mutual respect there, which is, I think the one thing that he and I really loved about not just our friendship, but our relationship on the court was that, you know, we didn't like each other, but there was a big time mutual respect there for one another. And, and Paul, Paul would always tell me, man, you know, especially, you know, leading up to his passing, like we always talked about how, whenever we played each other like that was always like you didn't get that from anybody else that whenever we played a different team like and he always said that too he was like you know you were the toughest sob i ever played against i was like well you were one of the best players in the area at the time so i was always gonna bring, make sure i gave you my passes <laughs> so so just those matchups against holt man like that was so much fun and just like and like nowadays like i talk to whenever i get a chance to talk to okamis's basketball team and i talk about our games against holt they all just look at each other and go, wait, Okemos and Holt were rivals. I'm like, yeah, like, who's your rival now? And they go, well, East Lansing. I'm like, well, we always killed East Lansing back in the day. So they were not our rivalry. But, like, it, it's just amazing to me how that rivalry was just so intense, so heated back when I was in school. And to see it now, like, basically dead, it's like, it's like, man, like, so basically, like, what we did is, like, 
people talk about it, but they don't like they remember they it. Talk about it. Fully understand. No, they'll they'll never understand it because like anytime I said to an Okamas kid, beat Holt for me, I can't stand them. Like I look at you crazy. Yeah, exactly. They do, and they're just like, why do you hate Holt? I'm like, because they were our rivals. They were our Michigan. Like East Lansing was it? No, East Lansing was like Ohio State to us, man. Like come on now, or Wisconsin, like so. Just, just those games, man, those matchups. I mean, you know, like I said, the players that were on those teams, man, it it was just so classic, man. And so, like, so whenever, you know, when my kids get older and I get to tell them about some of the big high school games I got to play in and just, like, the insane, how insane the student sections were, man. Like, those are experiences I hope my kids get to have one day because the fact that I got to have that as a high school player, I mean, it, it still means a lot to me to this day. November 11th, 2011. Oof. I want to I want to know the first word that comes to your mind and then I want to know your thoughts on that event. Oh man, first word that comes to mind when I think of 11 11 11. Um I think the only word I can think of is wow. <laughs> like just just that just that experience alone man, um that trip in general playing on the aircraft carrier like you, you know Coach is and Draymond, I think I think they both said it best, man. Like it, it really didn't matter who won or lost that game at the time because like everybody's name on the back of the jersey said USA, like the USA chance at the end of the game, and like us just being there in front of the men and women of the of the armed forces who protect our country, the real heroes of this country, man. Just like the, the, getting that experience, and like you remember this getting off, as soon as we got off the plane. What was the first thing we did? We went and go we went and saw the aircraft carrier, which was awesome. Like we got to experience what, you know, those men and women go through on a daily basis. I mean, we got, I mean, I think it was you, I think it was you, AP and Dede, like we're all fitting in their cots that they slept in. I was just like, I don't even know how like you guys could sleep in those at night or just like, I, I can't remember if you were, you might've been on the middle bunk. I, I was, was on the bottom. I was you were on the bottom. bottom. Okay. But even then I was like, man, like sleeping, like I was as a kid, I'm like, yeah, if I get bunk beds, I'm sleeping on the top, man. But like, <laughs> But at the middle and the bottom, I was just like, how can you, first of all, if you need to turn, if you're in the middle and you need to turn your shoulder, like, how do you even like fit under the head? Like, yeah. I couldn't do that. But it, it really gave me more of a perspective of what they do on a daily basis. And I think, I, not just myself, I think it gave a lot of us on the team a perspective of what it really meant to be in the armed forces that day. Because, you know, we, we, we've seen the videos, we've seen the footage of, you know, what they sacrifice and do for us, but I don't think we really, really realize what sacrifices were actually made and what goes in their lives daily, you know, on a ship like that. And so for us to be able to experience that and for us to be able to play that game and to, to meet President Obama, the first lady, man, like that, I mean, you know this, I mean, that that's a highlight, man, that nobody could take away from us. Like, that's a highlight that if somebody says to me, actually, I, I get asked this question quite a bit. Who's the most famous person you've ever met? I'm always going to say Barack Obama because, you know, yeah. uh, unless unless I meet Dwayne Johnson one day, then that's going to top it. But like, you know, Barack Obama will always be, you know, at top of that list because like it's not every day you get to meet a U.S. president, man. It's yeah. never like that at all. Like my my mom, my dad and my sister met Bill Clinton when he was giving um, a commencement speech at Michigan State back in the mid 90s. I was I was not able to go. Um, for obvious reasons um but but i got to meet another president which was barack obama and so for me to be able to say yeah i got to meet one of the most popular u.s presidents you know at that time i was like yeah i, I would love that and, and here's the other thing be would like 
I always tell people that the aircraft carrier game, that experience, it topped any Big Ten championship team I was a part of. It topped the Final Four experience. Like it topped all that because again, it's one of those it's one of those experiences that you will never have again. And obviously, they're going to have it again here in a couple of weeks. But like, you know, when Coach Izzo says the other day, like, I don't think Joe Biden's going to, I don't think Joe Biden's coming. When I hear that, I'm like, okay, well, our experience is a hell of a lot better because we met the president, we met the first lady. Yeah. President Biden ain't coming to that game. So we win. Like our experience is rule. So yeah. um, but again, just to, like just that experience alone, man, it was so much fun. And just like, mm-hmm. I mean, Magic was there, James Worthy was there, Vince Carter was there, like, you know, Jay Billis, Dick Vitale calling the game. Um, you know, the men and women of our armed forces there. I mean, Pam Anderson and Brooklyn Decker were sitting, you know, courtside too. And I remember like I can't remember if it was uh yeah, you didn't you didn't see that. <laughs> so, so so I think it was um might have been Dan Chapman or Alex Ghana. Like we were going through layup lines and shooting, and one of them just pulls me aside and goes, Hey, did you see who's sitting two rows, two rows over there? I'm like, no, who is it? And I look over, I'm like, no way. It's Miss Baywatch herself, Pam Anderson. I'm like, who I'm like, who's the other blonde next to her? AG goes, that's Brooklyn Decker. I'm like, the actress. He goes, Yep. I'm like, why are they here? Like, what? What is going on? <laughs> so, but just like, just how much talk. And I think, um, I think Keith Appling said it best in his interview about um, the aircraft carry game. Like, it was talked about as being one of the most watched games of the season. Season hadn't even started yet, but it was, it was all it was the very first game of the whole season. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so mm-hmm. I remember, um, and I remember when we were running out from our from our locker room, which was just a little trailer in the back there. Um, yeah. When we were running out as a team, um, Austin, Austin Thornton and I were kind of ahead of everybody. And so we're jogging out there. And the first thing that comes to my mind, I said to Austin, I said, I said, AT, let's go out here and kick their ass, man. Let's go out here and kick Carolina's ass. Let's start this off on a right foot. Mm-hmm. He just looks at me and goes, AI, you don't realize what's about to happen. I'm like, we're about to play North Carolina. He goes, no, we're about to make history. And I was like, Damn, it's bigger. Man. It's bigger than that. It's bigger. Yeah, than it, 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 it was. It was bigger. It was bigger than a game. It really was. I didn't realize that at the time until Austin said that to me. And right when we jogged out there, I was just like, "Damn, like it? Yeah, like this. This really is. This is history. Like this may never be done again. And like up until hopefully the next couple of weeks, they're able to play the game. Nobody else has done it. I mean, Ohio State Marquette tried to do it the following year, but it flopped because of weather, and we were able to get it done. And so. We we were part of that history, man. And so for us, for us to say that we were part of that, we were the team and we were part of that group that kind of kickstarted it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just awesome, man. And like I said, it is you know what? I would say jaw dropping too. I would say jaw dropping experience. Definitely, definitely. Man, one thing, I mean, obviously I could share every single thing you just shared from yep. my point of view, <laughs> but one thing that, that stood out to me, um, was how when we met Obama before the game and he knew all of our names. Oh my God. Like that's what, that's wild. That 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 was crazy. Cause like I, I swear, because as we were going down the handshake line, he shook my hand and he says, you know, obviously you go, you know, you know, hi, Mr. President, you know, my name is Anthony Ayani. Hey Anthony, you're graduating this year, aren't you? I was like, huh? So I swear, I swear, bro, he he had to have gone through every single player's name and facial recognition from like a program or like, I bet you like the FBI had like 
stuff on us, man. Like he probably told the FBI, give me whatever you can on each player from Michigan State. So, but it, it really was crazy. The crazier thing to me was, I don't know if you remember this, when Secret Service came in and they gave us a straight up proper etiquette lesson on how to shake hands with the president. They told us, you don't remember that? So as we're standing there, and there's just this this big guy, man. He had the sunglasses on. He had the earpiece in. And so takes those sunglasses off, looks at everybody and just goes, all right, look, here's the deal. The president's going to come in here in a little bit. You are going to shake his hand just like this. And you will say, hello, Mr. President. My name is so-and-so. You will not call him Barack. You will not call him Mr. Obama. You will not call him homie. You will strictly call him Mr. President. And I remember just looking at Alex and Chris Cruz, our managers, because they were standing close by me. I looked at them. <laughs> Now it's kind of cool. Yeah, I, I, I look like, man, we're really getting a proper etiquette lesson on how to shake hands and talk to somebody. Like, come on, man. Like, do you really think That's you, good. me, Day Day, or, or AP, well, maybe AP would have done this, but anybody else would have been like, uh, hey, player, grab him by the head. Player, oh. player, what up, baby? Mr. Barack. Mr. Uh, God, I miss AP, man. That's our guy. But like, seriously, like, getting that proper etiquette you know proper etiquette and how to be like proper with the president's like it's like man i feel like i'm back in elementary school again on how you shake somebody's hand and you look at them in the eyes like it's an um, honor to get those instructions (laughs) oh seriously even as strict as those guys were man like but the best part was this is how so i had i had no idea he even had an exit theme like you know he has hail to the chief he walks in and he has his own exit theme i don't know what it was but I remember, do you remember when they told us, like, you know, the president was leaving and you had to stay still right where you were at? You couldn't move. So yeah. I had no idea at the time why we couldn't move. And because I'm thinking, OK, he's off the boat. We can, we can move now. Right. So I remember, like, we specifically had to stay exactly like, dude, like he could you couldn't move until Air Force One got off the ground. And like Air Force One is like across the harbor. Like, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. So. So I'm standing next to this soldier. I said, sir, you mind if I ask you a question? He goes, sure, what's on your mind? I go, can you explain to me why, like, we can't move? Like, the president's halfway in the harbor right now. Like, why can't we move? Like, if I take one step to my right or one step to my left, like, what's going to happen? He just goes, come here. He goes, you see the tower up there, top of the aircraft carrier? I'm like, yeah. He goes, See that little shadowy figure that's just moving back and forth? (laughs) Well, he's got a nice rifle in his hands. So if you try to take one step to the left or one step to the right, it's not going to be a good night for you. I was like, all right, thanks for the heads up. So, (laughs) oh man, like, but we got that experience of this is what happens when the president's around. And that's Mm -hmm. something like I will never, ever get, we'll never get to have again because, Mm -hmm. like, and again, like I, 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 hey, never, I don't know about that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say never about that. Okay, never say never. But it might be a while before we get to experience something like that again. But just seeing like the preparation for him and 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 First Lady Obama, and just like how like everybody the fact was. Just, that, what was they? I remember they told us that they were. I don't know. Somebody was told that there were submarines like all around us. I did not hear that. Somebody told us there were submarines around us. Oh my yeah. god! I was just imagining like underwater, like it's probably some big ass submarines right there. It, ready you know what? It would not surprise me. It seriously wouldn't surprise me if there were like four submarines surrounding the ship, and just like 
on full watch because I know there were a lot of helicopters around us. I know that. So like, just like the protection that he got just for that one night, like that that was just crazy to me. So again, like it was all part of that jaw dropping experience like we got to have with the aircraft carrier. Yeah, man, it's crazy. Like one thing I'm realizing is just looking back on that year because you know I was only there one year. Yeah. So one thing I realized we were so locked in and so focused and so invested in the season and preparing for the games that made me think like man during that game I know I was so locked into the game like man I should have been trying to interact with Barack on the sideline right. you, know, you know ran over there and you know took a charge by him you know I should have I should have I should have uh, give him a little wink or something like that yeah, <laughs> yeah, have him touch the ball get some of that feel good that, that good juju right there <laughs> yeah, yeah. so so the next game we went to Madison Square Garden. And I know for yep. me, that was my first time ever playing there. Was that your first time or you have been there before? I've been there before. So it was for the it was for the Jimmy B Classic the year before against Syracuse. And, you know, just that, and I'm sure your experience and the, your feeling in, about MSG was the same. When you walk through those hallways, like you feel the history, man. Like when you're, even when you're in that freight elevator going up to the fifth level, which I had no idea that Madison Square Garden was like this, eight level or like I don't know how many level building that had a bunch of these offices like I legit thought it was just a straight up arena in the middle of New York City but no like it was more than that so I remember we went up the freight elevator going to um the arena floor and I remember as soon as you got off the elevator like, you just kind of feel this aura about Madison Square Garden and like you walk down the hallway to the locker room and you see all these different photos of you see like Mike Tyson, Muhammad Ali, Hulk Hogan, um, Patrick Ewing, Kobe Bryant, just like all these great, um, all these great athletes, all these great actors and actresses that were there. Um, comedians. Yeah, comedians. Yeah, like uh, Bernie Mac, Chris Rock, Chris Tucker, um, Robin Williams, just to name a few, man. Just like, mm -hmm. and even like all these great artists, like the Backstreet Boys, um, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, just like, you know, everybody that we grew up listening to like they were all in that building and so you can feel that you can, you can feel, feel that presence in there yeah for exactly sure. exactly took the words right out of my mouth you could feel that presence and even in the locker room it's like oh man like i wonder if michael jordan and the bulls are in this locker room like i wonder if like the lakers are in this locker room so like just the history behind that place and you know to be able to be there not once but twice in my college career i was definitely special and so um you know you know to say that you know, not only I got to play on an aircraft carrier game, but then three days later, you, you would have told me if you were recruiting a young Anthony Ayani at the time and Tom Izzo says to you, hey, your freshman year, we're going to go play on an aircraft carrier and we're going to play Madison Square Garden the next three days. I would have been like, where do I sign? Like, that, yeah. that's awesome. And, and it's not I know for me, even for me, I was I was in that situation, you know, leaving Valpo. Mm -hmm. So that was part of, you know, the pitch to get me to come there was just, you know, we're opening up the season with North Carolina and Duke. You know, one of them on an aircraft carrier in San Diego, the other one three days later on the other coast in New York at Madison Square Garden. I'm like, say no more. Where do like, I I'm sign? In. I'm in. And, and, that, and that's the I thing. Need like, this stage. I need this stage in my life. Right. And, and like you said, like, if it was like, if it wasn't Duke in North Carolina, if it was like us and say, like, I mean, we played them earlier that season, but if it was like us and like Gonzaga on the aircraft carrier game, like they are this year. I don't think it would have had the same hype. It, yeah. it, it, it would have gotten a lot of attention because of the aircraft carrier game. But this was this was number one North Carolina at the time. So yeah, it's like it's Michigan State's two his, historical programs. 
if we would have played somebody else in Madison Square Garden, say like Syracuse again, mm-hmm. it would have had it would it would have just been like, eh, it's just Syracuse, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, no disrespect to them, but like it's Duke, it's Coach K, and Coach K at that time was trying. That was to- it is, he, he had to win it. That win, well, he made him the yeah. Winners. That 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 win made him the winningest coach in NCAA history. He passed Bobby Knight. I hated that too. The fact that he had to do it against us, like you couldn't have done it against like some other like schmuck team or anything like that. No, you had to do it against us of all people. So, but hey, I I get to tell people I got to shake Coach K's hand in the handshake line, congratulate him. And he said, "Well, thank you, young man. I appreciate that. Good luck to you." It's like, yeah, the conversation, with Coach K. Yeah, that was look, look. That was a that was a special moment for me in that layup. I mean, in the handshake line as well. But before the game, I remember like when we were coming out, like before the. You know, before they let the fans in, you know, yeah. we were just getting stretched out, getting our stuff together, getting ready to warm up. Um, so I remember I'm walking through those same tunnels you speak of, you know, looking at all the pictures on the side, you know, just kind of mesmerized while I'm walking through. Then I don't know if you remember, it's like kind of like a lounge right before you turn and go yep, through I remember the, that. the tunnel with the, the tunnel has the plexiglass along the side. Yep. So, Hey, this is crazy, but the first I'm walking through the hallway, I turn up, bust the right to go out onto the court. I see the plexiglass, the first, the very first, and mind you, this is before they let anyone in. Yeah. The the very first, I look up, the very first person I see is Spike Lee. (laughs) Like there before anyone, you know, and and that's what, it kind of takes me back to being so locked in because now I'm thinking like, man, if that happened now, I would have stopped and I would have been talking to him, (laughs) it up with him. And, but it's like, we were so focused. It's like, and for me, just being there and being a one, like being there for one year. And yeah. you can imagine, like I was even, I even had to lock in kind of probably even more than y'all, you know? Right, right. So yeah. like just those type of moments, I look back, I'm like, man, like it went so fast, you know? Yeah. But it's crazy. That's always a story that I tell is when I'm walking out on the court at Madison Square Garden, the very first person I see is Spike Lee, literally like f- less than 10 feet away from me. And like he he owns that building too, man. Like let's yeah, be honest. Yeah, yeah. Spike Lee owns that building. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was that was an amazing experience, man. And just you know, playing against Duke, the 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 night for Coach K, you know, becoming yeah. a winning coach, all the different alumni that was in the building. Um, I remember that was the first time I seen Plaxico Burris. Yep, he Plax, um, Plax was there Plax 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 I remember that. There. Uh, I remember right across from our bench. I, I remember I came, I subbed out one time, I looked straight across from the bench. And I see Carmelo and CP3 sitting next to each yep, other. I remember that. That was so that crazy. Was, yeah, they, were, they had no room. They were sitting all tight. <laughs> but yeah, man, that was a that was an amazing experience, man. So so we go, we started the season 0-2, and, and then we went like what 20-some games straight? Yeah, I think it was like I think it was like 15 in a row or something like that. Cause I remember I remember after we lost to Duke, everybody was just like, all right, well, that's it for this team. But I remember the one thing with us was like, all right. We lost two in a row. We've hung in with two of the best teams in college football this year. Because I remember, I, we, it was I think, like, oh, not to, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was gonna say like we were down, we were we were down to Carolina, I think by like four or something like that. We were beating Duke at halftime, mm-hmm. and then you know I they had a buzzer beater going into the half. Yep, I remember that. I remember that, and it put us up by like four or something going into the half. So like we. The, the problem was Carolina had all that experience. Duke had the experience. Yeah. We were, we were still young as a team. I mean, day day had like he, him and Austin combined had more career playing time than the rest of us on the team did. So there were still a lot of questions. And so, yeah. but I remember if there was one thing I remember after we lost to Duke was everybody stuck together. It's like, okay, we just lost to two of the best teams in the country. People are counting us out. Let's go out here. Let's go punk some people. And let's just, and let's go from there. So 
So I think once we got into that groove of winning games, and I think once we went out to Gonzaga and smacked Gonzaga on their home floor, I think that's when we all kind of realized, all right, we just beat Gonzaga at Gonzaga, a place where they've only lost four times, I don't know how many years. Everybody thought we were crazy and stupid for going out there playing them. I remember I remember Coach Izzo telling us that Judd Heathcote thought we had signed our death wish, our death certificate, because we were because he was like, nobody wins here. Like, why would you do that? That's basically and then we like, play uh, we played at their old gym too, wasn't it? No, no, no. So we so we play them in their usual arena. So the kennel oh. is where they usually play, but it's only like a six thousand seat arena. Um, for like really big games, they'll play in like Seattle or something like that. Oh. But um, I think we did. I think we practiced in their old gym. I think we practiced in the old gym they used to be in. But I think after that Gonzaga game, but that was also the trip too, man, where I look back on and go, you know what? I think that's, this is, this is when I realized how tight knit we all were. You remember that big old, that big steak dinner coaches treated us to that trip. I, I just remember that dinner and we were all sitting at all, at all these tables, just joking around with each other, having fun. You know, I'm sitting at the other end with, with Travis Trice, Alex Gauna, Brandon Dawson, and then Dwayne Stevens, DJ sitting across from me, coach Fife is sitting next to me. And we're all just sitting there goofing around. We're all just sitting there having a good time, you know, messing with each other, watching football. And I remember in that moment, I was like, okay, this team is going to do special things because of how tight-knit we all are. Like, everybody was tight with each other. Everybody was goofing around. We all we would all go eat in the cafeteria together sometimes, me and the freshmen. We would all go watch, you know, our managers play their IM games. So, like, we're going to intimidate their opponents and whatnot. So, but – just just after that trip, I was like, you know what? Like, we're gonna do some special things this year. People better watch out. And so, so I think like once we got on that 15 game winning streak, and once our freshmen really started to like get out of their shells, out, get out of their comfort zones, that that team became pretty damn special, man. Yeah, yeah. It, to me, it was just such a well rounded team. Yeah, you know, just with obviously starting at the top with coaches and assistant coaches. Um, down to day day and his leadership on a team amongst the team uh yeah like you said we had a group of young freshmen uh yeah. who you know had to get ready you know but ended up being ready when it when it came down to it um me being a new guy you know it was kind of a adjustment for me you know just uh learning all the offense and the defense you know and just I mean it wasn't really difficult for me because I was experienced at the time and I could adjust and play my role and whatever role that was needed. Uh, but just as a team standpoint, it was, to me, it just seemed like the right pieces, you know, the right mm -hmm. people to, you know, like yourself, you know, you spoke on it many times, just the role that you've played throughout your career on the scout team, mm -hmm. you know? So we had like the perfect team for a scout team as far as having Keenan who can go crazy and yeah. be free, having Joe Sweeney who can be had a green light and go crazy. So mm -hmm. I feel like we just had a lot, like the right pieces, you know, and there really wasn't, nobody really had, there wasn't like any ego issues or pride no. issues. It was just everybody understood their role. Everybody listened to Day Day and everybody held themselves accountable and, and, and pushed each other, you know, and just was a good teammate, you know, so. And, and you said it best, B-Wood, everybody understood their role. Like, everybody had a role to play, and they played it to their best of their ability. For example, you know, guys like myself, Dan Chapman, Kobe Wallerman, Joe Sweeney, Ke and, and Keno, we all knew, like, our role was simple. Go out and beat the living hell out of our starters and second team guys because mm -hmm. – they're not going to get any other better looks against anybody else in this league, but us. And mm -hmm. so 
but even the scout team, like you talk about, I mean, sometimes it was me, Dan Chapman, Alex Ghana, Brandon Kearney, Russell Bird, like that five right there probably could have started anywhere else in the Big Ten, whether it be Rutgers, Nebraska, you know, Maryland, Northwestern, wherever. So, but our goal, that five, that starting, that scout team lineup was always, hey, we're going to go out here. We're going to kick your ass. We're going to do what we got to do. Like, we're going to have some fun while we're doing it. And so, but we all took pride in that. And I remember, like, sometimes you guys, the first teams, the first teams would talk so much trash to us. And then we we would, like, we'd get after you and we would talk smack back to you. So it, that's what made it so much fun. It's like, but guys loved that. They thrived off of that. And I think just, like, the fact guys knew what their roles were and they played it so well. And I think that's the one thing you don't see with a lot of college teams these days is that, you see guys who don't get playing time. It's like, oh, I'm going to hit the transfer portal. I'm out of here. You know, mm-hmm. that's not my role. I'm a starter. I'm out of here, which be what I'll be honest with you. Like if I wanted to, like I probably could have transferred to like a D3 school, probably started, get put up my points and probably had a nice college career at, at a D3 school somewhere if I wanted to. Right. Mm-hmm. But no, like Michigan State was always my number one goal. And I was going to get there no matter what. And I was going to be on scholarship and work my butt off no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, So. But D- DJ told my dad something. Dwayne Stevens told my dad, you know, I think it was my first year at Michigan State. You know, I played really well in practice one day, and DJ told my dad, like, hey, if we would have gotten Anthony here from day one, like, if he would have came to Michigan State right off the bat and not go to Grand Valley State, he probably would be starting right now. I mean, DJ told my dad that, and I was like, okay, well, DJ's telling my dad that, like, you know, I don't look back and go, oh, yeah, I regret. No, like, I don't regret not going to Michigan State at all because the two years I spent at Grand Valley State, or maybe out of the five years I had in college, those two years were the best years I had in college outside of basketball because the the relationships I made there with the administrator, the administration, with other athletes and friends I'm still cool with to this day, it was a big reason why I love Grand Valley State so much. The basketball piece, Michigan State's always going to take that because the experience I had in East Lansing with coaches was just, it'll never be touched. It won't be. But everybody that knew their role played it well. And I think that's why we were so darn successful that year was because everybody had to play their role in order for us to be successful and win. And we had the right leaders to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think D Nix put it best was that he, after we lost to Louisville, our senior year in the tournament, D Nix was telling the media how all four of them, all four seniors did the best they could to provide leadership. And so whether that was Dede being, you know, the alpha male of the group and making sure like everybody listens to him, everybody takes instruction from him. But then you had Austin who would calm people down and be like, hey, like you're good, you're good. You had yourself who would just lead by, you know, who would just lead by example. You had myself who's the rah-rah guy. Like every single one of us seniors had a different role as far as leadership goes. And I think when you have multiple seniors on a team that could provide multiple areas of leadership, that's a pretty darn good combination for success right there, if you ask me. And you just speaking on the different types of leaders that each of the four of us are, it makes me think like, man, just the impact that the three of y'all and y'all different leadership styles affected me in a positive way and allowed me Mm -hmm. to continue to grow and mold into the leader that, you know, I am today and I continue to try to grow into. So, you know, that's a great point that we had four different types of leaders. Like that, yeah. that's special, you know, that's, that's very, very special and, and different in our own ways, you know, but all complimented each other. Yeah, it, it is. And I think, and I think you said it best. The key word there was complimented because if you, 
I mean, if Austin and Dede were the only two seniors on the team, I don't know how well, you know, they would have complimented each other because I, obviously, you know, Dede is really an intense guy as far as an intense leader goes. Austin's more like the really laid back. Like he'll get in, he'll get after you. Austin will, would get after you if you were slacking and not doing your job. But Austin was also that guy to pull you aside and go, hey, man, like, you're good. You're good. Just keep, yeah, just keep, keep doing what you're doing. And so, but the fact that we had four guys, you know, that year, you, me, Dede, and Austin, like, and that we could, you know, be able to combine like our leaderships and like the different types of leadership that we provided. Like, you know, if I got in Dede's ear about something, like he was going to listen to me. And I think that was the other thing too, was like, we had guys on that team who didn't mind being held accountable for things. Yeah, yeah. We respected each other. It, exactly. We respected the hell out of each other to the point where, okay, if you tell me something and I'm not doing something, I'm going to do it then. Or, and I remember this was one time we were playing at Minnesota and I think we were down 10 with like eight minutes to go or 10 minutes to go in the game. And I remember Day-Day and, and Dean and Nick's went after each other in the huddle. And so I had to pull Nick's back and I had to whisper and I had to get in his ear. I'm like, I'm like, Nick's, please, man. Like, please, like, this is for a big 10 championship. Like if we win, we're one step closer to this championship. Like, don't do this. Like you want to do this on the plane ride home. Fine. I don't care what you do, but for the love of God, please don't do this now, man. We don't need this right now. And he just looked at me. He's like, "Hey, I got you. It's all good." And I remember, I remember Austin was talking to Day Day, and Day Day was like, "Hey, we're good. We're good." But like in that moment, I think Nick's, you know, he respected me enough, and still does to this day. And I'm the same with him. Like I respect the hell out of D Nick's. Like in that moment, it's like, okay, this is AI senior year. This is Day Day senior year. Like he's right. This isn't about like fighting right now over like somebody not communicating on a ball screen. Like this is about us like winning a championship. And so, but like you said, it was about that respect. Like we could all hold each hold each other accountable. Like sure, Day Day was the guy to make sure he held everybody accountable. That was his job as our leader. But mm -hmm. as a team, like we had to make sure everybody was held accountable. And if one person messed up, the whole team kind of paid for it. And I think obviously that was, you know, Mike Vorkovich, you know, type of deal too, where Vork held the entire team accountable for everything if one person shows up late. So, mm -hmm. but when you have a team man like that, that respects everybody, when you hold, when you have, when you hold each other accountable and you're not afraid to get in your teammates ear and they listen to that, it's mm -hmm. like, okay, we got something here. We got something. Cause I remember that was really, that was the first team that had ever been on where, um, that was a part of the leadership, you know, I never, that's why I always will, you know, appreciate, you know, joining that team and specifically, as I'm sure you can relate, just oh, yeah. being on a team with someone such as Day Day, you yeah. know, who, who is first off going to hold himself accountable and make sure he's mm -hmm. doing what he's supposed to do and leading by example. But up until that point, I had never had like a real teammate that, you know, would really get in my ass and tell me about myself and, you know, and hold me accountable and, not only hold me, but my teammates, you know, and when yeah. you see that, when you see that accountability being held on different teammates and it's being received well, you know, it's like, okay, like that's where that respect comes in, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I will always give Day Day credit for, for showing me that level of leadership, you know, because yeah. I know that was a big, uh, big stepping point for me, you know, for sure. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I think that's why B Wood, and I'm always going to say this, and maybe it's because I was teammates with him for three years, you know, man, he's one of my guys, but like, that's why I always think Day Day will go down as one of the greatest leaders in our, in our program's history. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, I mean, that's no, it's no disrespect to Mateen Cleaves. It's no disrespect to Steve Smith. It's not even disrespect to Cassius Winston. I mean, Cassius was not only a great player, but he was a great leader too. But like, just how Day Day would get after you and how he would hold you accountable, but not just that, but like, he would let his own teammates hold him accountable. 
And I think that's what makes an incredible, and I think that's what makes a leader so great is like, if you can hold yourself accountable and let others hold you accountable and you hold the rest of your teammates accountable, that's what makes you a great teammate. And, you know, were there times that, that day day could be a real jerk at times? Yeah, like, of course. I mean, but you, you kind of had like, a, as a captain, as a leader, you got to be a jerk sometimes to your teammates because a way, again, it's another way for them, for you to be real with your teammates. It's, mm-hmm. it's a way for them that it's a way for them to see, okay, he's not BSing me. Like, if he thinks I'm acting like this and he's going to be a jerk about it, like maybe I should start kind of listening a little bit, but like, and I think the other thing is too, is just like how much he respected everybody in that program, how much mm-hmm. he respected his teammates, the coaches, the man, the, the managers, especially like he, like the way he was with our managers and the credit that he gave those guys, because again, like our managers, man, you know, this, they do all the work. You know, Mm -hmm. we just, we go in, we show up, we practice, we read the scouting reports, but like, who gives us those scouting reports? Who makes all those? It's the managers. It was Jordan Ott, our video coordinator. Like they did all the stuff. And like, even when we got back from Indianapolis, the big 10 tournament, what were those guys doing? They were getting every single DVD and scouting report ready for any potential team we could play in the tournament. Mm -hmm. And just seeing what they went through and like, and Day Day gave them gave them so much credit, and I think I look back and go, you know what? I think that's why again, like the entire team was so tight knit, was because we understood what our managers sacrificed and what they did. We understood mm-hmm. what they would go through on a daily basis, and we understood like they put in a lot of the extra work. They put in more work than what we did, and mm-hmm. so and everybody just joked around with each other, man. And I think that's what that's what really made that team a family too, because mm-hmm. it wasn't just about wasn't just about Draymond Green, wasn't just about Austin Thorne or Brandon Dawson or Brandon Wood or Anthony Ianni. Like it was about everybody. And I think that, you know, the, before you got there, the 2010, 2011 team, man, was made, it's still one of the worst teams that coaches have ever had. And I remember after we lost in the tournament that year, I'm walking back to the hotel with Day Day and Austin after the game. I, and I caught up with them. I put my arms around the shoulder and I said, guys, like, here's the deal, man. Like, I ain't going out like this next year. I said, I know for a fact that you don't want to go out like this next year. So I said, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make sure that we don't do this next year. I said, so let's make a pact right here and now. We ain't going to go out like this next year. We're going to do whatever we can to make sure this offseason that everybody puts in the work and we put this program back on the map where it belongs. And I think that that and I think the biggest difference between that year and our senior year was we had some selfish guys on that team the previous year. I'm not going to name names, but we had some selfish, we had some selfish individuals that year. You fast forward to our senior year, we really didn't have a lot of selfish guys on our team. Mm-hmm. We we didn't have guys that were all about all American accolades or all about, you know, getting 2000 points and a thousand rebounds. Like we really didn't have any of that because like we talked about, everybody knew their role guys, mm-hmm. but more importantly, guys knew if they played their role to the best of their ability we were going to win. Everything mm-hmm. else was going to handle itself. We were going to win. And we kind of got that. We kind of got that swagger about Michigan state back again. And that, that swagger of we're going to walk into your gym. We're going to intimidate you as soon as we pull our Jersey on. And then mm-hmm. you're dead. You're done. And I think that's what was missing the previous year before. Now, some teams have caught up to us, but even when we went to Ohio state, for example, we beat them there. I still had that, that feeling of we walked into that gym they saw a completely different team from the year before. It's like, oh, dang, like this is not the same Michigan State from last year. Like these guys, they got that intimidation factor back again. And, man, like we did. 
We really did. So that that team right there, man, it brought the program back. It put the program back on the map. I feel like it's one of the greatest teams of Michigan State history. It's definitely up there. In the you, top, could, you, could, top. you could you could you could make that argument, man. Like, cause I will. I don't think you know, that team really gets a lot of. I don't, you never no, see B, get any no, credit. No, B Wood. That, that's the problem. Any, that's history, you never see no videos. No, you never like, see that team really no, talked about at all. You you don't because like if you look at the 2013-2014 team that lost in the Elite Eight, some people put that team ahead of ours. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. First of all, yeah, we lost in the Sweet 16, but like, look what we did that year. Like, nobody gave us a chance. We were we weren't even picked to finish like eighth in the conference that year. So like, why why are we getting a shot? Like, you know, obviously like. Unless you're a national championship team, you're going to be one and two in that category. Unless you're if you're a national title team, you're one and two in that category. Yeah, sure. But yeah. if you if you look at some of the final four teams, Coach Izzo has coached, I will put I will put those teams ahead of any of those. Like you know, you can make an argument the 2009 team. You know, I, I don't know if we I don't know if you could put us ahead of them because of everything they went through. But you want to put us ahead of the 05 Final Four team? Yeah, I agree. I think we're I think we're better than that team. I mean, I think we were definitely better than that team. Um, but I, I completely agree with you. Our team, man, from 10 years ago, I don't think I, – I I personally don't think it gets the respect that it deserves. And the, and the sad thing is that was Day-Day senior year. Mm-hmm. That was Day-Day senior year. Like, he was the man. And, like – and, like, and I don't think he gets enough credit for that. Our Big Ten tournament run does not get enough credit for that because, yeah, we, we killed Iowa, but, like, you look at the Wisconsin game. We were down by like 15 early in that game. And then Austin goes off for four threes in the first half. And then we absolutely blow them out. We play Ohio state and maybe one of the greatest big 10 tournament championship games of all time. Like those were two heavyweights that went after it. Mm-hmm. And you don't hear a lot of people talking about that. It's like, man, like get, give us our due, man. Like give us our due. I'm curious. Wonder why. So those of you who are involved that may see this or may not, why is that? Can yeah, you answer for that for us? I want to know. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great question. I, I want to hear the answers to that one. Uh, yeah, but, man, so, like you said, we continue on into the season, Big Ten regular season championship. Um, ended up losing the final game. to If we, we would have had the title right, right outright, if we would have won our, our senior if, night game. If, yep, if we would have won senior night, if we would have beaten Indiana at Indiana, we would have clinched it right there and then. But, yeah, I man. Just... A, I airballed a free throw that game. Oh, uh, You remember I, that? that? That was a rough night for everybody, man. <laughs> it was. I, I remember Oladipo went off for 30. I'm like, this dude never goes off for 30. But then again, like, I'm thinking, this guy's not – this guy's not – oh, he's a lottery pick? Please, he's not a lottery pick. Two years later, he's a lottery pick. I'm like, all right, yeah. cool. <laughs> like, that was but, a fun game. That was a fun game. So yeah, we and then we go as a number one. So we we won the Big Ten tournament championship, yep. beat Ohio State and Indianapolis. Going to the locker room for the selection show, the NCAA fun. selection show, because that was our championship. The Big Ten championship game is always the yep. final game of the season. Yep. So we go in the locker room, uh, haven't even gotten cleaned up, haven't taken a shower, sitting on the couches watching the selection show. We get announced as a number one seed and. You know, we're all going crazy. So tell me about that experience. That that to me, man, was the biggest shocker ever. Because I, I would have thought that um, I think I think Missouri at the time, they were a number two seed. I, I legit thought at the time that Missouri would have gotten a one seed over us. Um, 
either them or Ohio State. I really thought that Ohio State would have gotten a one seat over us. Um, because you know, because you know, you know how the selection committee works. Like they already got the bracket ready to go. You know, before you know, before the Big Ten tournament's done. Now, maybe for our game, they may have had like Ohio State like in this spot, and they, I don't know how they do it, but like. Mm-hmm. You know, when we were announced as the one seed for the West, I was like, wait, we're a one seed. Little, <laughs> little old Michigan State that was given absolutely no chance to do anything this year. You got us as a one seed. And I remember just like we all went nuts. And I'm looking to my left and there's this CBS camera crew there. And I just went nuts. And so so I log on to Facebook when we were on the bus ride home. And one of my buddies I went to Grand Valley State with took a picture of me just going like, like that. <laughs> He tagged me in it, and all it said at the bottom was glory. I was like, man, you guys are too funny. Like, But just like that experience, man, alone was Just so to cool. be able to say that you were on a number one seeded team. You were a one seed, yeah. Like nobody that's, that's, that's nobody very could take rare. that away from you. Nobody yeah. could take that. That 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 fresh moment, off of, Fresh off of two Big Ten championships? Yes. Like that was – that was. I always refer to that, that, that year as, you know, it, it was it was a dream year. Yeah. I couldn't even I couldn't even have dreamt that year. <laughs> no, no. The the only thing that could have made it even more perfect is if you make the final four. And obviously we didn't get the chance yeah. to do that. But like, I mean, if you would have told me at the beginning of the year, somebody would have said to me, Anthony, hey, you're gonna win a Big Ten championship your senior year, and you're gonna win the Big Ten tournament title, you're gonna make a run in the sweet 16. If somebody would have said that to me at the beginning of the year, I'd be like, you're crazy. <laughs> you're <laughs> insane. But it's funny though, because like when we were doing um when we were doing media day with the media uh joe rex wrote who was uh, the free uh the beat writer for uh Bas- michigan state basketball at the time for Atlanta state journal he did an interview did a story on me because i was just put on scholarship at the time and he asked me the question you know what's it going to take to win you know what's it going to take for this team to be successful this year i said toughness i said we're going to be the toughest team in the conference i said that's why we're going to win the big 10 title this year we're going to be the toughest team in the conference and that's what's going to help us win i said the toughest team will win the big 10 conference I remember he kind of looked at me like, yeah, I love the optimism there, kids. Like, no, I'm serious. Like, we're going to be the tougher team. That's why we're going to win this conference. And so after we had, um, I think it was after the Big Ten tournament, I lo- I saw him. I said, hey, how about my prediction now? He goes, you're pretty, you're pretty, you're pretty good, kid. I'm like, yeah, I know I am. Because that's, that's how much confidence I had in my teammates from day one. So, um, but again, like you would have told me, oh, yeah, this is, this is what's going to happen. I'll be like, yeah right man you're you're kidding (laughs) yeah so i want to kind of pivot to finish the the convo so first off man just on you know everything you've experienced and been through as a young boy growing up you know the courage to now be older and be sharing your story and getting uncomfortable and traveling and continue to to inspire people around the world man like i said much respect for that and just to be on a, such a great team with you and spend time and for us to have that great year together, you know, that's definitely something that's bonded us for life, you know, and mm-hmm. we'll always, you know, continue to have this friendship and there's no telling what's going to happen in the future with everything else we're involved in. So that's what I kind of want to pivot to, you know, we have a, a mutual friend, Brian Wagner, that we've yeah. uh, both gotten to know and gotten familiar with and, someone who's been there for us as a mentor and someone we've been able to look to for guidance and for advice and, you know, just for anything that we need. Um, he actually, he actually, I was resting before we got on here. He called me. So I'm actually going to call him when we get off of here. So I'm going to call you back, Brian. Um, but yeah, um, I just want to ask you just how you, first off, I'll share how I met Brian. 
Um, so when I first moved out here to the Arizona area, um, Arizona is one of the biggest alumni bases in America. Yeah. So we have like almost 6,000 Spartan alumni out here currently. So I knew that was important for me to get involved with the alumni uh, group out here. So I reached out to my good friend now, Kevin Vaughn. I don't know if you're familiar with Kevin. No. Um, but I reached out to him and he told me to type up a little paragraph of what I'm here for, what I'm looking to do. Um, he took the, the paragraph, sent it out to the whole database. So um, after he sent that letter out, a few people started reaching out to me. The per first person who reached out to me was Brian. Mm -hmm. So I met with Brian and, you know, Brian just opened the door to everyone else. So he's probably introduced me and probably had me meet with at least 20 people to this point, you know, so um, definitely appreciate Brian for that, you know, just the relationship that uh, we've had, just the, um, you know, just the perspective that he's been able to share and expose me to and, and the stories he's been able to tell me and, you know, definitely appreciative to that you know, him playing that mentor role to me. Um, so just want to maybe, maybe you can share how you guys uh, met and uh, just your relationship now and, uh, you know, kind of just catch us up. Man, I'm trying to think. So, so Brian, so I met Brian through, um, through Caleb Thornhill, who's um, mm -hmm. a player development and for the Miami Dolphins and, yeah. and Travis Key. So I, so I did Apex Foundation, right? Yep. So that's how I met them through uh, their foundation, because they had their football camp and education camp at Michigan State. I think it was around, I want to say eight years ago, maybe seven years ago, six years ago around that. So uh, Brian was there. And so afterwards, you know, we talked for a little bit, stayed in touch after that and um, had some phone calls about, you know, what what I want my future plans to be and what I want to do and whatnot. And so um, so that's kind of relationship started. So. I know, I know I've been busy with a lot of my stuff and I know he's been busy with his. So, um, but I mean, we, he's definitely followed my career and what I do and where I, where I go and everything. So, but he was definitely, you know, one of those guys who, you know, really kind of show me how deep Spartan nation really is, but in the alumni really is too. And so, you know, he's introduced me to quite a few people within our different alumni chapters throughout the country. And, you know, I've been able to have good relationships with those alumni chapters and still do to this day. And so, well, like, kind of like you, like he really kind of opened the door for me to kind of see how much, how much of a, how much of a fan base and how much of a alumni base we really have in this country. I mean, you mentioned, I mean, Arizona is one of the biggest alumni chapters in the country. Um, mm -hmm. California is a big one. And then Florida, Chicago, New York. So just like, just seeing what the relationship that I've developed with him, that you developed with him, like it's opened doors and kind of opened our eyes a little bit to really realize how big our alumni base really is around the country, not just the country, man, but around the world as well. Yeah. 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 No, for me, man, what well, he kind of showed me and, you know, I know he's had a bunch of different roles throughout the years, but yeah. to me, from what I've uh, come to understand, what Brian is, is a connector, you yeah. know, and that's what I've learned. And I want you to kind of share. Um, that's what I've learned. You know, people such as himself who um, have been in the business for a long time and, you know, built businesses, sold businesses, just been involved their whole life. Um, one thing I realized is, you know, at, it gets to a point to where they just want to be a connector and connect us, the younger generation, with the right people. So um, that kind of began, took my networking to another, another level once I met him. So I want you to share on just the importance that networking has been for you, you know, and just share your experience on that for, you know, uh, the young AI or young B Wood, you know, who's coming up and 
and maybe plays a sport or maybe has their own uh, lane that they're in. But, mm -hmm. you know, what we learn and find out is that, you know, ultimately relationships are what are going to take you to those next levels, you know? So maybe yeah. share uh, your perspective on networking. I mean, it's a huge perspective. Cause like, if you look at like the job I do now as an advocate, as a speaker, like I'm always, I'm in schools nonstop and I'm always making sure like, Hey, like I know this person, this organization, maybe you ought to connect with them or so, yeah. or I know this person at this high school, why don't you give him or her a call? So like just being able to make those connections and yeah. keep it those turned, connections. It turned, it turned us into connectors. It, it did. It really did. And I think the biggest thing too is, and this is something I would tell the young me or the young you is like, you got to advocate for yourself too, because, you know, there's going to be days where you may sit back and you look and look and go, Oh man, I wish I could do this. I wish I could do that. It's like, well, here's how you do it. If you really want to get something done, if you feel like you can't do it yourself, like you got to advocate for yourself, like go out and don't be afraid to ask for help. Because I think that's the one problem with today's younger generation is like today's younger generation gets so, I wouldn't say scared, but they get really too cool for school on going and asking for that extra help, advice, and guidance because they may think they know everything in the world today, which they don't. Like, that's just quite frankly how it is. Mm -hmm. um, but that'd be my biggest advice to anybody is like, you got to advocate for yourself. Like, you got to mm -hmm. show people that you that you want the help, you want to be successful. But like, with me, if I want to be great at what I do, like, I know I can't do it by myself. Like, I, I have a support system outside of my family that loves what I do. So it's like, okay, I'm gonna reach out to so-and-so. I'm going to see what other kind of resources I can get to help me be successful as an advocate and as a speaker. So, but that's what you do as an advocate. And that's how you advocate for yourself. It's just like going to others and getting that help and advice and guidance that you need to be successful and to take that next step you want to take in your career. Most definitely, bro, man. I appreciate that, man. And thank you very much, man, for taking the time i know you probably got the shorties to tend to <laughs> so, uh, man again thank you for for coming on this episode and uh i look forward to you know we've talked through the years of you know coming together and eventually doing something so um i'm looking forward to the day when when that comes full circle no same here man and you already know i appreciate you having me on man it's been a lot of fun yeah already bro talk to you soon man thank you bro much All love right. much go love bro. go white Thank <laughs> you.